We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this evening. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm sure there are some things on your heart as you come into the Lord's presence tonight. Maybe things that you're thankful for, uh, things that you're burdened with, and let's take some time to draw near the Lord together. Father, we do thank you that you speak to us through your creation, and Lord, something like Pikes Peak is always majestic, but then at times with snow and the sunset and the lighting and the clouds, you can just light it up, and Lord, we're reminded of, of your glory and how much you love us, and we give you our thanks, we give you our praise, and God, we also give you our burdens, those things that we're praying through tonight. So as things come to your heart, why don't you just express that to the Lord. Take a moment to draw near to the Lord. And Father, as we come and spend time in your word tonight, God, we ask that you would speak to us. You give us ears to hear and hearts to understand that we would know you, that we would know your power We'd apply these truths to our lives, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of updates before we begin. I talked to Chance on the phone on Tuesday, and they made it uh, to Texas and are all getting settled in into their new house, and he started his new role. He had his first uh, weekend service, and it went really well. So thanks for praying for him, and please continue to pray for him. He's at Green Acres Baptist Church. Uh, so it's kind of humorous, Chance Real at Green Acres Baptist, but... That is literally the name of the church there uh, in Tyler, Texas. And also Billy, who's our new worship pastor, uh, he's set to start December 1st, and him and his wife, Laura, uh, will be in town uh, the week of November 7th. So he's going to lead for us November 7th and 8th, and then they're going to be looking for a place to live and move out uh, December 1st. So you can be in prayer uh, for him and his wife, and we're really excited to welcome him to our church family as well. So... Tonight we're going to be looking at tent dwellers, tent dwellers. The scripture tells us that these bodies are simply tents. Now if you have never had the experience of going tent camping, you are missing out. I grew up in a family that that was part of our tradition. That's part of what we did as Cartiers is we would go tent camping. And that was many times our family vacation. And as a boy growing up, I absolutely loved it. I just looked forward to getting into the mountains, seeing the stars, being by a stream, being by a lake, trying to chop down a tree, all the things that would come with camping. We love to do it as a family. Amber and I try to get our uh, family out at least once a year to go uh, tent camping. And the thing with, with tent camping is usually in one trip, there's always something that reminds you about how much you appreciate your home. Can I get an amen? Any, anybody like, like, yeah, yep, d definitely. And if you like do the RV thing and the trailer camper thing, you are not a tent camper, okay? You're, you're in another class of camping. We're talking about old school tent, right? So I remember one camping trip, specifically there in Southern Oregon, where we get the tent all set up, and it's the green canvas tent, you know, the real heavy uh, Coleman tent, get it, get it all set up, and it starts raining. And in Oregon, it can rain and rain and rain, and it was not letting up, and the rain just continued. But we're hardcore. As a family, when we go tent camping, it's like, we are going to see this through, no matter what, right? So we huddle up in, in the tent, and we just start playing games, and water's coming in the side of the tent. And it was, it was a great, great memory. But the best part of that is my dad broke down, and he said, 
down the road, there's this little cafe. Let's go there and get some pie. And in Oregon, they have Marion berries. So it's this berry that grows in Oregon. So we had Marion berry pie with vanilla ice cream. And I was like, oh, that made it all worth it. But then we had to go back to the rainy, wet, soggy tent. And it does make you appreciate life back at home. And what we find tonight in our study is that this body that you're in is just your tent. And it causes us to look forward to our eternal home, the body that God has prepared for us, our glorified body. But a lot of times we don't view our bodies that way. We don't view life this way, that we're just temporary dwellers passing forward to what God has for us. I think if we can adopt this mentality that I'm simply tent dwelling, I'm just passing through, I'm a pilgrim, I'm a stranger, it really will affect the way that we see our lives, the way that we live our lives. It's a great encouragement. So verse one, for we know that our earthly house, this tent is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. At the end of chapter four, Paul encouraged us to not look at the things that we can see, but look at the things that are unseen, the things that are eternal. And part of looking at what's eternal is focusing on this house that God prepares for us. So the first thing that we consider tonight in our encouragement is our house. We're tent dwellers, but we're encouraged to look at our house. So verse one tells us that our earthly house, this tent is destroyed. It is perishing. It is going to be destroyed. And we're living that. It's in the process of decay. It's in the process of death. You get to that place where you hit your peak, and then every day forward, you're stepping closer to this tent being destroyed. That's a little bit discouraging, isn't it? We try to prevent that at all costs. I don't want my tent to to be destroyed. The studies are amazing. 10 out of 10 people that eat organic, they die. They absolutely eventually (laughs) do die, right? And There's some good reasons to, (laughs) some of you are looking at me like, what is wrong with you? But it's true. It's very true. And there's some good reasons to eat healthy and to exercise. Your quality of life in this tent can be better, but the end result is you're still going to die. And a lot of times we're trying to put off the inevitable. I think it's important to be a good steward of of your tent. You're going to be here for a little while, so take care of it. It is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But ultimately, this tent is going to be destroyed, and we're walking towards that. We're, we're walking towards that end. But here's the encouragement. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And what's fascinating about this is God is talking about the eternal glorified body that he has prepared for us. The house that he has prepared is that glorified body. The body here is illustrated as a tent, but the glorified body is this permanent dwelling place that's eternal. Think about all of the things that your glorified body will not experience. Your glorified body will never know sin, your own sin or someone else's. Won't that be incredible? That'd be awesome. It'll never experience disease. You'll never have a disease in your glorified body. It'll never experience an ache or a pain, the stomach flu, or diarrhea that goes with the stomach flu. (laughs) You'll never experience that in your glorified body. The scripture tells us that all the tears are going to be wiped away. There's going to be no more sorrow in this glorified body. Your heart is not going to ache. You're not going to be discouraged. 
You're not going to be depressed. Those are some of the things that this glorified body will never experience. But think of all of the good things that it will experience. You will behold God. That's something that was very dear to Job as he says, this one thing I know, that I'm going to see God. I'm going to behold God. God is going to give you a physical glorified body. You won't be the spirit in heaven. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, and he had a physical body that could be touched. You're going to have a physical body, and with that body, you're going to be able to behold God. You're going to be able to, to see God also experience every wonderful thing that he's created for you in heaven. We know Jesus is going to have the marriage feast of the Lamb. He gets the body of Christ, the bride of Christ together, and he has this great feast. Maybe it's just me, but have you ever thought about all the food that's going to be in heaven? There's going to be tastes that we've not even begun to explore here on earth that God is going to have prepared for us. You're going to experience seeing him, beholding him, the marriage feast of the Lamb. We're going to rule and reign with Christ. What's that going to be like? We can only imagine, but God is going to have these wonderful things for us to be able to do, and we look forward to that. That's our house. So this teaches us something very important about us is our body is not who we are. And culture says something completely different. You are your body. And it's easy for us to look at this really driven physical culture that we live in and think that, but this tent's going to be destroyed. Someday, this body is going to be buried and you're going to continue to live. It's your soul, it's your spirit that's the essence of who you are that's going to live for all of eternity that's going to receive a glorified body. So if you bury a loved one, one of the most difficult things in the loss of a loved one, a spouse or a child, a parent, is the burial of their body because you feel like you're losing that person. Because every memory that you have, every connection to them has been through this tent. But the tent's just temporary. It's just a temporary housing for the soul and God's gonna give this glorified body and the person, the essence of that person is not in the body. If you have a family member that's getting older and getting closer to eternity, if you personally are, are getting towards the end of your life and you look at your body and you go, this is so discouraging. The body just isn't working the way that it, that it used to. This family member's not who I remember them to be. That's not who they are. That, that's not the essence of who they are as a person. It's just a tent. And if we can begin to see it that way, it's temporary. God never designed this to be permanent. No one ever goes out in a tent and says, I'm going to live in a tent forever. It's always a temporary dwelling place. I remember working at a camp in Evanston, Wyoming, and one of the counselors, he lived in his tent for the summer. It was three months, but it was still temporary. And that tent got beat up pretty bad, and it's just a temporary dwelling place until we receive this building, this house that God has prepared, and it's eternal in the heavens. In verse 2, for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. So we go through this life and we're groaning. We're, oh, we're groaning. Doesn't that a great way to describe life? What are some of the reasons that we're groaning? Well, we groan because this tent's wearing out. And you wake up with a new ache and a, a new pain. And if you're 25 or 15, you don't know what I'm talking about, but just keep going. The aches and the pains, they're coming, trust me. Uh, and you wake up and you're like, oh, I'm groaning for this eternal body that God is going to, to give to me. We groan because of our own sin. 
Don't you get frustrated with your own sin and your own struggles? Like, when am I going to get past this? I'm tired of struggling with this. I'm tired of failing in this way. It causes us to groan. You know, the, the struggle of sin around us, it affects us, and we look at our world, and it causes us to groan. And what we're really longing for is heaven. And the scripture tells us it's not going to be fulfilled in this life. So if you think that you'll be satisfied in this life, you're missing it. We've got to look past this life to eternal life. And Hebrews 11 describes people that adopted this mentality. And this speaks of Abraham. It says, by faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He set his eyes on heaven. He set his eyes on eternity. Even though God had given him an earthly promise of the promised land, he really looked for the city that God created. Hebrews 11 verse 13 says this, These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Have you embraced and confessed that you're a stranger and a pilgrim here on this earth? A stranger means you're going to be a foreigner. You're never going to fit in here. This is not our home, but we're always wanting to put our roots here. We're always wanting to make this tent permanent. God's saying, no, it's not going to be permanent. And once we can recognize, okay, I'm going to be a stranger here. And then a pilgrim, a pilgrim's one who is on a journey. Set your heart on that pilgrim. It's very important for us. We're groaning for that habitation and being clothed. First Peter 1 verse 1, he says to the pilgrims, he writes and he says, I want to encourage you that you're pilgrims. So we have this analogy that before we get our eternal glorified body, we're naked, but then we'll be clothed. And we see that in verse 3. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. So when we go home to be with the Lord, we're entering into our house. We're entering into our clothing. So until that time, we're naked. Until that time, we're tent dwellers, but we will be clothed and we will receive our house. We will receive our habitation. In verse 4, For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. This is very important. It's not that tent dwelling is bad. It's not that this life is so bad to the point where we're saying we want to be unclothed. Hasn't God made this life wonderful? There's things about this life that are absolutely beautiful. For it being a temporary existence, God's sure done a really good job. He's given you a really good tent. You're created in his image. He's put you in a beautiful world, even in the midst of his fallen state. And it's amazing that God-given desire and power and will to live. We want to live. We want to live. We'll, we'll go through cancer treatment. We'll go through things like dialysis. We'll go through heart transplants. God's allowed us to do amazing things with this tent. Why? Because we want to live. There's something inside of us. You talk to young people and they want to go to the age where they get married. You know, if you're married and you have kids, you want to live to see your kids grow up. If you don't want to live to go see your kids grow up, come in and get some counseling, you know, because you should want to see your kids grow up, right? It's a God-given that God's put us inside of us 
that there's aspects of this life that we absolutely love and adore. So it's not that we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up in life. It's the principle of this, that heaven is going to be better than this life. Satan's got some really good lies. He's got some good lines that a lot of people have really fallen into. And it's easy for us to think that heaven's really not that great. And what the scripture is telling us is that heaven is great, that mortality is going to be swallowed up by life, that life's pretty good now, but it's going to be amazing when we get to heaven. And Satan's made heaven out to be a place that you wouldn't really want to go. You think of eternity, right? Forever. Chubby angels and harps. Like, who wants to sit and hang out with chubby angels and harps for all of eternity, right? And then people talk about hell, and they're like, yeah, I'm going to ski and snowboard there. When it freezes over, it's going to be one giant party, and my friends are there. And woo! You know, it's like, wait a second. That's completely backwards. Hell is weeping and gnashing of teeth, outer darkness. You're not even going to be able to see your hand in front of your face, let alone your friend. There's a worm that dies not. What in the world's that, right? Some worm that just crawls around down there? Hell is the absence of the presence of God. It's the last place that you'd want to be. And heaven has everything good about this life on steroids, multiplied. It's something to be longed for and look forward to. Jesus said, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. God looks at it as a good thing. God goes, your tent wore out. It's time for the glorified body. It's time for you to come home and be with me. It's your ultimate graduation. In verse 5, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Did you catch that? He who has prepared us for this very thing. This means God has put eternity in your hearts. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says, He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he's put eternity in their hearts except no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. And he has put eternity in their hearts. God is preparing you for heaven. He's preparing you for eternal life. The guarantee of heaven is the spirit. The spirit's the down payment that we can trust that God's gonna be faithful to his promise. The spirit's a pretty wonderful down payment, agreed? So I was thinking about this. We have an example in our church building for you tonight of a tent dwelling. And no, I did not bring my family tent and set it up in the foyer, but in the junior high room, you'll notice that the doors are closed, they're locked, and there is black plastic on the windows because inside of there is the box maze for the harvest gathering. And every year in the staff meeting, Andrew Krause around September, our junior high pastor says, hey guys, do you think we're doing the box maze this year? And Pastor Robert usually leans back in his chair and goes, yep, we're doing the box maze this year. And Andrew goes, oh. And the reason is, is because he works so hard. He works all week long. They started Sunday after church, and they've been building all week long. The harvest gathering go from 2.30 to 6.30, and then his great creation gets torn down, and it breaks his heart. So if you could find Andrew Krause tonight and just tell him, Andrew, we feel so sorry for you that this has happened to you. And it hit me. It hit me that the box maze is our physical body. It's temporary. That, that box maze has a purpose, and it's a four-hour purpose. And then when the purpose is done, we wipe it all out, 
put it in the dumpster, and Lazy Boy, the store, they supply us with boxes again next year. It's a great partnership that, that works out. But it's a great example. We look at those boxes, and we go, it's only temporary. It's only four hours. They, it serves its purpose. And that's how God looks at our lives. Compared to all of eternity, our lives is so short. And God is preparing us to be with him for all of eternity. And verse 6 So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. This is true, right? We're confident of this. As long as I'm in this body, I'm absent from the Lord. I'm not present with the Lord. We know that God is with us, that he lives inside of us, but we don't see the Lord. We're not in his presence the way that we'll be when we go to heaven. So verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. This is such an important verse. We walk by faith and not by sight. This is where these truths of eternity, of our glorified body, this house that God has prepared for us, we walk by faith. You think about walking, and walking is going somewhere. Walking is progress. Walking is movement. And this describes our relationship with the Lord. We're walking with the Lord. We're following the Lord. He says, come follow me. How do we follow him? By faith. How do we embrace these truths? By faith. We don't see them. Have you seen your glorified body yet? I imagine mine to be very buff, right? <laughs> that would be wonderful. That would be the glorified version for me. I claim that that's, not what, why, that's why I don't go to the gym, because in heaven, I think I'll have a buff, glorified body. So why put all the work in now? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but... I haven't seen my glorified body. I haven't seen your, your glorified body. We might imagine what our glorified body looks like, but we embrace it by faith. Have we seen heaven? Have we seen eternity? Have we seen the throne room of God? No, but we embrace it by faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. There's not gonna be forward movement in our relationship with God if we don't walk by faith. A lot of times we want sight first. Okay, I'll see it, then I'll believe. If I see it, then I'll be encouraged. If I see it, then I'll move forward in the things that God has commanded me to do. When the children of Israel came out of the promised land, or excuse me, out of bondage to go to the promised land, they traveled through the wilderness. God did amazing things. Part of the Red Sea, manna from heaven, their clothes didn't wear out, a cloud by day, fire by night. Twelve spies go in, check out the land. And they come back, and there's only two that give a report of faith. It's Joshua and Caleb. The rest said, we're grasshoppers compared to these giants. They're walking by sight instead of by faith. They were able to convince the whole multitude of Israel that there was no way that God could defeat the giants. It was only Joshua and Caleb that were willing to see it through the lens of faith. And of that generation, they were the only two that got to go into the promised land. It's really very unusual even among believers, to live this out, to walk by faith and not by sight. I bet there's some area of your life where you're having to apply who God is and the promises of his word by faith tonight. And that's the battle. I can go by sight, I can go by what I see, or I can go by faith of who God is and the promises of his word. But we walk by faith, not by sight. We can't enter into his promise except through faith. In verse 8, we are confident, yes, well-pleased rather, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Your last breath as a believer here on earth is followed by your first breath in eternity. 
when you close your eyes here to finally pass away and you die, whenever that moment comes, the next thing that you're going to see is the glory of God, the face of Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. We can be confident of this. And notice, we're confident. Yes, rather well-pleased. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This means there's no soul sleep. There's a lot of questions about that. When someone dies, is there this long time where they're in this soul sleep before they go to be with the Lord? No, they go to be with the Lord exactly at that particular moment. So then rises this question of when do we get our glorified body because of 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. And you may want to write down those two sections of scripture, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, because it's very clear there at the coming of the Lord that that's when the dead in Christ rise and that's when they receive their glorified body. So we know scripturally, we don't get our glorified body until the second coming of Jesus Christ, but we know right here to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we conclude that in heaven, time is completely different. Time is completely different. When you think of eternity, what's a thousand years in light of eternity? Peter says that a thousand days to us is like a day uh, unto the Lord. So it's completely different to the Lord. So maybe people that have gone home to be with the Lord, they're waiting for their glorified body for, for like a second. Or maybe their time is completely different and it's eternal now. I don't know, but I don't think people are up in heaven going, oh, I, don't, I sure hope my body gets here. This is kind of awkward. <laughs> my spirit's here and that's the essence of who I am, but... My body isn't here yet. Can we just hurry this whole thing thing along? But we're confident to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The scripture teaches nothing of purgatory. You might be saying, well, what's purgatory? It's this idea that people go to this holding tank and then we can pray for the dead. And then at that point, through our prayers, they either go to heaven or hell. And the scripture teaches that what you decide about Jesus now, in your life now, determines whether you go to heaven or hell. There's really no point to pray for the dead because their eternal state has already been decided, determined on what they have chosen with, with Jesus Christ. And I know that's difficult to hear, but we should focus our energies on those that are still alive, that still have the opportunity to choose and believe in Christ. So now we look at our aim in verse 9. What's our goal then? So we see our house, and if eternity is sure, then what's the purpose of life now here on earth? Verse 9, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. So here's our goal. Whether I, I die and I'm with the Lord, or I wake up tomorrow and I still have life here, here's my goal, is I want to be well-pleasing to the Lord. Think about what's your aim, what's your goal? We're in a very goal-driven culture and society, aren't we? We always kind of have an idea of where we want to be in five months, where we want to be in five years, ten years, those type of things. And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with some of those goals. If we're praying about them and surrendering them to the Lord, but we're to seek first the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus tells us. The number one goal or priority in our life is not more money, or bigger houses, or more position, all of those things that that come in. Our number one goal is, God, I want to seek first the kingdom of God, and your righteousness, then all of these things will be added unto us. And it's convicting when we stop and think about, what are my goals? What are my aim? And is it 
top of my list to be pleasing to the Lord. Part of this really goal-driven society thing is a lot of times that we push our kids to be these amazing athletes and be amazing musicians and have great education. And this, this is our goal for our kids, even as, as Christian parents. And there's nothing wrong with that. But far more than any of that is, man, may we be pleasing to the Lord. Maybe we be a family who's in love with Jesus Christ. Secondary to that is music. Secondary to that is athletics. Secondary to that is, is academics. And it's really easy for us, even as believers, is to get that confused in our own lives and in leading our children, saying, I care about your education. But you know what I care about even more is your heart for Jesus and knowing that Jesus loves you, that Jesus died for you. And that's our goal. We want to be pleasing with the Lord. So how are we pleasing to the Lord? Well, first is to receive his grace through faith. Isn't it wonderful that the way to please the Lord is to trust him? God says that without faith, it's impossible to please him. With faith, he's pleased. When we trust in his son, Jesus, in the finished work of the cross. I know we believe that probably, but do you understand how simple that is? That that's what causes us to have God's favor, for God to be pleased with us, is by trusting in Jesus Christ as our Savior. That's what makes us well-pleasing. If we're not trusting in Christ, our works are as filthy rags unto the Lord. So we trust him for salvation, and then it's this desire to walk with the Lord. God, I want to walk with you. I want you to be pleased. I want you to be glorified in my life. Lord, I fell short this week. I fell short today. God, would you, you forgive me? And to really have this be the aim of our hearts and our lives. Verse 10, for we must all appear for the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. It seems like that believers are really afraid to focus in on eternity because there's this idea, if you really get excited about eternity, that somehow you're gonna check out in this life or somehow you're gonna be tempted to commit suicide. And that's really the furthest teaching of really understanding eternity. Because if we really get eternity and that we're going to spend all of that time with the Lord and everyone's headed to eternity, whether heaven or hell, it really motivates us to live engaged in this life. All of a sudden, we go, man, this life is really short. And so instead of checking out of this life, I'm going to check into this life. I'm going to engage because I realize that God is gonna hold me accountable for the life that I lived here. And that's what Paul is teaching here. He's saying, based on eternity, each of us are gonna go before the Lord to the judgment seat of Christ. And this is a judgment for believers. It has nothing to do with salvation, but it does have to do with eternal reward. And eternal reward's one of those things that can be really confusing. We, I, don't, I don't even understand eternal reward. But Jesus taught us to lay up our treasures in heaven. So one, if it was important to Jesus, it should be important to us. We also see that crowns in the scripture, in the book of Revelation, the elders were able to take their crowns and lay them down at the feet of Jesus. And crowns are something that is the reward of believers. So here God's so gracious, he saves us, he changes us, and then he's going to reward us. He does all of the work through us, and then he's going, oh, by the way, I've got an eternal reward for you. And we get to lay that down at the feet of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 9 describes this as our life going through a fire. And what's done for Christ comes out as precious gems. What wasn't of Christ comes out 
It burns up as wood, hay, and stubble. But your life, my life, is going to go before the Lord at this judgment seat where we'll have to give an account to, to the Lord for how we lived, for the things done in this tent, in this body, according whether it was good or bad. In verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your conscience. It says this idea, this truth, that we're going to stand before God at this judgment seat of Christ as believers, it should cause us to live in terror of the Lord. The word awesome, you know, has come to mean cool. It's like, oh, that, that's awesome. But the idea originally with the word awesome was this idea of terror. Like, like oh, this is amazing. It, there's something about this that causes me to be put into my place. And when it comes to the fear of the Lord, there should be an aspect with God where we are moved to be in holy reverence of God. And in fact, the Proverbs tell us that this is one of the most important things when it comes to our attitude towards God. It says that the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. So until we can get this right, until we can put God in his proper place and put ourselves in our appropriate place, there's going to be something really missing in our relationship with God. And there's an aspect to fearing God that he really can bring the consequences. I think that we don't want to undermine that. There's an aspect about God where you don't want to mess with him. Do you want to mess with God? You know, like, I don't want to mess with God. There's an aspect of him that should cause us to, to have that kind of reverence. But I think it goes much further, much further than just his ability to bring the consequences. It's his heart of love that causes the fear and the trembling more than anything else. Paul's saying is I'm afraid of God, not in the sense of the consequences that he can bring on me, which are absolutely true, but I'm fearful of hurting his heart. And that brings us into a greater level of fear. I think you understand this if you're married. You probably know if you went out and you committed adultery that your spouse, rightly and appropriately, could bring the heat. Your spouse may even tell you, if you ever do that, I'm just gonna let you know I'm gonna finish you off. I'm gonna do you in. I'm gonna commit murder, right? It's, it's over for you. So just consider that when you're thinking about going out and committing adultery. And they're halfway laughing, but they're halfway serious. You know what I mean? <laughs> but hopefully that's not what motivates you to not commit adultery. If it is, then we have counseling available as well. You know, if you don't wanna see your kids grow up and the only reason you're not committing adultery is you're afraid your spouse is gonna kill you. No. Hopefully this is what motivates you as I don't want to hurt their heart. I, I, I wouldn't want to ever see my wife go through that. I'd hate to see the look in her eye when I decided to, to put her through that kind of pain. And you've probably heard this story before, but, but if you have, bear with me, because it's the best personal experience that I have with the fear of the Lord. I was in eighth grade. It was time to do my spelling words. I'm a terrible speller, always have been, probably always will be. And my parents knew that, and so in order for me to do halfway decent on the spelling tests, is I had to study every night. Well, I'm in eighth grade. I'm 13 years old, and I'm figuring, you know, I don't need to do my spelling anymore. So mom says, hey, Eric, you need to study your, your spelling words. And I, and I go, eh, forget that. And I grab my spelling book, and I throw it across the room. 
And I walked out of the kitchen like, man, tough stuff, you know, like, I just told mom what to do with the spelling book. This is awesome, you know. And I go walking downstairs, big and tough, and like 13 or 14, I was this tall, you know, I, so I got my height really, really early, and, and so I was thinking I was tough stuff. And then I, I hear footsteps coming behind, down the stairs, and they were mad footsteps, and they were my dad's footsteps, right? He's a big man, he's at his prime, and I looked at him, and I just thought, this was my, my moment. And most boys think about this moment like their whole life, like right out of they come out of the womb. Like you're looking at dad, and you're sizing him up. You're like, I wonder when I can take him. I wonder when I, so I'm like four years old looking at my dad, like when can I take him? Well, not yet. You know, I can't take him yet, right? So, so this, is, this is when I thought that I could take him. I'm, I'm now 13. I can take him. And I rear back just to the best that I can, everything that I've got, and I hit him in the stomach. And I thought, man, he's really going to feel this, you know, in my 13-year-old wisdom. And then once I hit him, I realized it didn't even phase him. And all of a sudden, the terror of dad came over me, right? And I could tell that he was really angry. And it must have been the power of the Spirit because he then looked me in the eye and with a little tear in his eye, not because of the pain, he said, son, why did you hit me? You've never hit me before. Let's sit down and talk. And I didn't get grounded. He didn't hit me back. He didn't cuss me out. All of the things that you would think would happen to a 13-year-old boy who's just hit his dad. And I've got to tell you, after that day, I feared him because I didn't want to hurt his heart. I didn't want to go through that again of doing something that would hurt him in that way. And that's the fear of the Lord. God gave his son for us. And yeah, he can bring the consequences. He can bring the heat, but he's pursued us with his love. And when we act in a sinful way, I think it's the heart of God that comes to us and says, why did you treat me that way? You've never treated me like that way before. And then Paul understands that. And he says, the terror of God, the fear of God, that moment that I'm going to stand before him, it motivates me. I want to serve the Lord. This is the message of these verses. The way you live now as a believer matters. And somehow if you've missed that in the teaching about God's love and his grace, it's important to re-engage with that. God's love and his grace is for the purpose to change our lives right now and for all of eternity. And what the scripture is saying is what you do now is going to echo for all of eternity to God. No one on this earth may ever remember that we existed, but God sees and he remembers. And he's going to go, oh, you got that child, a cup of cold water in my name. You had a great attitude taking out the trash. You loved me. You served me. Thank you. Thank you. And here's your eternal reward. But what we do now, it matters for all of eternity. In verse 12, for we do not commend ourselves again to you but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Paul says, I'm not going to try to earn your respect again. He's saying you, you are the proof of our fruit. Your lives are the proof of our, our ministry, and you can speak on our behalf of those who only boast in appearance. Boasting in appearance and not with a genuine heart is apparently not new, <laughs> This is something our culture does really well. We know how to put our best foot forward. We know how to boast in appearance. And Paul's saying, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in the heart. In verse 13, for we are beside ourselves, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God, 
or if we are of sound mind, it's for you. So Paul's saying, if I'm crazy, I'm doing this because I'm following the Lord. But if I am of logic and of sound mind, it's for you and it's for your benefit. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. This is how we know the love of God is tied in with the fear of God. Because Paul says, it's the love of God that compels me. When we really look at the love of God, doesn't the love of God move us? Doesn't the love of God compel us? That God would give his son for us, that he's long-suffering, that he's gracious, that he's kind. That's what moves us. That's what causes us and spurs us to action. Now Paul looks in at the death of Jesus Christ and what the death of Jesus Christ means for us. In verse 15, and he died for all, and those who live should die no longer, should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So what Paul's saying is we're identifying with the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for all, meaning also that we died with him. So no, we're not living for ourselves, but we're living for the one who rose again. It's important to realize my life is done. I I died, and now I'm living unto Jesus Christ. And it's appropriating and applying the death of Jesus Christ to our lives where Jesus is the captain of our souls. Verse 16, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. So how we're to look at each other is not at the flesh, where we're not just seeing the tent, but we're seeing each other through the lens of the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for you. You're the bride of Christ. You're the son of God. You're the daughter of God. And he gives us this illustration about Jesus. We knew him according to the flesh, but we don't relate to him in that way any longer, meaning Jesus is still not on the cross. We knew him in that way. We know he died for us. We know he rose again, but now he's seated next to the Father, and we relate to him through the Spirit. We don't know him any longer. We don't relate to him any longer through the flesh. In verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So we've seen our house. We've seen our aim, but now we see our identity, our identity that we have. Old things have passed away, all things have become new, and you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. We put a lot of labels on ourselves, and we allow other people to put labels. Some of the labels that that you might wear has to do with your profession. You're a teacher, you're a pilot, you're an accountant, you're a pastor, you're construction. You, You have that label. Some of it may be what your role is inside of your family. You're, you're a husband, you're a dad, you're a wife, you're, you're a mom. And then there's other labels that we put on ourselves like failure, loser, condemned, all of these types of things. And others are really good at pointing that out in our lives as well. Satan's in the label game too. He loves to come alongside and put labels upon ourselves. And all of these things begin to start to form our identity. And we think our identity is found in what we do. I'm a, I'm a straight-A student. I'm a good athlete. Or, oh, man, I'm, a, I'm an addict. Or and you, all of a sudden, you've got some type of label that, that you wear. And God comes in and he says, this is not who you are. This is not your identity. All of the old things have passed away. I've made all things new 
and you're robed in Christ's righteousness. This is who you are. And that's the most secure place for our identity to be. John the disciple somehow got this. And when he writes the Gospel of John, he simply says, the disciple whom Jesus loves. He never writes his own name. He says, I'm a new creation. I'm just going to wear that. I'm going to wear the love that God has for me, and it's so freeing. So guess what? Your identity's not in how good you do at work or how much money you make at work or how many accolades that you get or degrees that you can get behind your name. Your, your identity's not found in how well people think that you parent. We love to play the parent competition game. You know, well, this group of dads think I'm a really good dad. Ladies, these group of moms think I'm a, I'm a really good mom. You know, I, I did it. You know, that, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they think I'm a good dad or they think I'm a bad dad. That, that's not my label. My label is that I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. It's so freeing. You're single. Maybe you feel like that, that's your label. Everywhere I go, people look at me like a, a single person. No, you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You're married, and you feel like that, that's your label. No, you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And this is so deep. Church, this is so deep. For us to relate our identity to who we are in Christ and also others. Do you see other believers in your life as a new creation, or do you see them after the flesh? Because if we see them after the flesh, we're always going to be frustrated with them. We're going to be frustrated with ourselves. We're going to be frustrated with others. But if we can look at them and go, oh, Jesus, they've been robed in your righteousness. If it's good enough for the Father, how come it's not good enough for us? That's convicting, isn't it? The Father looks at us and goes, oh, you're robed in my son's righteousness. Welcome in. You're my son. You're my daughter. So it should be enough for us as we identify with one another. It's our identity. And the last thing we see tonight is our reconciliation. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. God has reconciled us to himself through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Reconciliation is a mathematical term. Remember, maybe some of you still balance your checkbook, right? You reconcile your checkbook. Many of us now, you just go online. It's the greatest thing that ever happened. You know, maybe not so much, but <laughs> you write a check, and then you write that check down in the, the back of the deal there in the check register, and you reconcile it all out. And if it doesn't reconcile, there's, there's big problems, all those types of things. And what God is communicating here is when you do the math, we were hugely in debt to God. Beyond words, beyond calculation. There's a debt that we couldn't pay because of our sin. Jesus came and he paid it upon the cross. He crucified and he yelled, it is finished. That all who believe, they receive grace, they receive forgiveness, and we're reconciled unto God through what Christ is when we're brought into right relationship with God. He has paid the price for us. Now, because of that, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. So as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, what are we doing? What are we out telling people? We're telling them good news. We're telling them that God loves them, that they're sinners just like us, 
and that Jesus has paid the price that those who repent and believe are saved so that they can be reconciled unto God. This might not be very popular, but first and foremost, our ministry is not politics. There were politics happening in Paul's day. The Roman Empire was ruling the land, and Paul's number one agenda was not overthrowing the Roman Empire. Right? You, know, you duck when you say that. Our number one mission is the mission of re- reconciliation. Countries come and go. Re- leaders come and go. I hope you vote. It's, we're a steward of that opportunity. But our primary ministry is of reconciliation. It's of good news. It's of pointing people to the cross of, of Jesus Christ. What a great ministry that God has given us. What good news that we're able to, to share with people. We have the answer that people are longing for in the love of Jesus Christ. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So the work of Jesus Christ was so sufficient that those who believe God doesn't impute our trespasses towards us. He doesn't put that sin against us because it's been paid for by Jesus Christ so that he could give us the word of reconciliation, so that he could give us the gospel, so that we could go out and we could share with people what Christ has done for them. I think that this message in ministry of reconciliation is something that we share, but it's also something that we live. And the sharing is important, and also the living is important. And in order for Jesus to bring reconciliation in our lives, he had to die. He had to pay the price. And a lot of times for us to bring the ministry of reconciliation to a lost and dying world, it means that we have to die. And that's what Paul said in the verses just prior. I'm identifying with Christ. I realize that my life is over. I've surrendered my life to to Jesus Christ. Because when someone sees us be wronged and extend grace and extend mercy, they go, why in the world would you do that? Why would you extend mercy when you should be holding this person accountable and you say, well, because God has forgiven me? All of a sudden, the gospel becomes very relevant in their lives. But that's when it gets difficult. I love grace in my life, but I don't like extending it to others. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to give the grace that we have received. So it's something that we share, but it's also something that we live. In verse 20, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As through God, we're pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We're the ambassador of Christ. We're the representation of Jesus Christ. And we're pleading with people that they would be reconciled to God. We're saying, this is so important. You've got to stop and consider Jesus Christ. I wonder how many people won't go to heaven because they've never stopped to think about eternity and the claims of Jesus Christ. Here's a side note. I think part of this ministry of reconciliation, it's primarily to unbelievers, to a lost and dying world, but it's also to one another as believers. There's times where we have to suck it up and realize God's given us the ministry of reconciliation to see God repair relationships inside of the body of Christ. If God has reconciled me through the death of Jesus Christ, then I should have a soft and tender heart that God could bring reconciliation between me and a brother and sister in Christ. 
And Romans 12 tells us, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. How can that be? Because of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That's part of the ministry of reconciliation. Part of being in the body of Christ as we go, Lord, I want to live in peace and unity and harmony together with believers. So we reach out to a lost and dying world. We're committed to unity with one another inside of the body of Christ. Verse 21, it's one of my favorite in all of scripture. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He knew no sin, but he became sin for us. Jesus likened himself to a serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness. How could Jesus' perfection be likened unto a serpent? Because all of the sins of humanity were placed upon Jesus Christ and he was punished for those sins. See, in order for me to be reconciled with God, God had to be just. He couldn't just look at my sin and go, oh, no big deal. Boys will be boys, girls will be girls. I forgive them, give them a pass. I'm feeling gracious today. Then we go, God, you're not just. That was really kind, but you're not just. I mean, how good would you feel if you owed someone a debt and it wasn't paid? Like, like they didn't just let you off of it. You, somehow you just it never got known. You know, for you to feel good about it, it'd have to be paid. And so God in his justice had his son become sin. Our sin was placed upon him and he was punished for my sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Amazing that he would do that for us. There's times, even in our sinful state, where we get accosted by sin and we go, wow, that is heavy. How could someone do that? And you can probably think of some times in your life when sin has hit you like that and we're sinners. Imagine Christ, who's God, who's never sinned, and all of a sudden he's got to take on all of this sin. He's got to take on the rape. He's got to take on the murder. He's got to take on the abuse. He's got to take on the lust. He's got to take on the gossip, the envy, all of it. He's got to take it all on. He becomes sin for us. No wonder he cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we could become the righteousness of God. So that we could rest tonight knowing that our sins are completely forgiven. Do you understand how deep our reconciliation is with God? It is complete. It is finished. It is paid for. God has not imputed your sins towards you. They're removed from you as far as the east is from the west, never to touch again. Why? Because that's how wonderful the cross of Jesus Christ is. And that's the message that we get to go share with people. Jesus paid for this. He died for you. He rose again. He's ready to forgive you. He's ready to restore you and reconcile him back unto himself. And when I hold on to an unforgiving spirit, when someone else has wronged me, when a believer has wronged me, I failed to enter into the ministry of reconciliation. I failed to realize Jesus has paid for it. I've enjoyed forgiveness, so now I've got to extend it to someone else. So let's pray and ask that God would apply these truths to our hearts. God, would you help us to understand that we're just tent dwellers? So many days in my life, this just seems so permanent. It's all we know. We can't imagine life outside of it. But Lord, you tell us that this is extremely temporary.
Would you allow the hope of eternity to set deep into our hearts? May we embrace our pilgrimage today and every day of our lives. Well, we pray that we would make it our aim to be pleasing unto you, that we would know that it's important how we live our lives. God, we thank you that our identity is in you. It's in the blood of Jesus. It's in his death and resurrection that we're new creations in Christ. We thank you for that. We thank you for the reconciliation that we received, and God, would you help us to be able to share that with others in our life and in our words. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.